Welcome to the Elevate the Vibe podcast, bringing you juicy convos with thought leaders discussing the wild world of parenting. For parents with kids, just truly impart the belief and the idea that you as a kid are worthy and deserving of love no matter what, and that your parents will be there no matter what you're feeling or what you've done or your decisions or your behaviors, they're still there to love and support you just as you are. And that's never going to change. And I think that's huge. What up, wild and wacky inflatable arm flailing vibe hive fan members. (laughs) It's Jay. It's Katie. We're here. It's Wednesday. Get used to it. It's time for the Elevate the Vibe podcast. Shug. Welcome back, Vibe Hive. Hopefully you survived a fun-filled weekend with your family. Hopefully you didn't take pictures of your plate of food and post it to social media. I'm just kidding. If that's your thing, that's cool. But I hope that you had a delicious slice of pie and you ate everything that you wanted. And if you don't celebrate Thanksgiving, if you were in Mexico drinking beers and eating ceviche, I hope that every piece of salt on the rim of your margarita was delicious and i hope that maybe you use some of the tips and tactics we gave you on our last solo episode of the etv podcast yes help you get through the uh fun family situation that you found yourself in this past weekend and if you didn't listen to that episode the beauty of it is that you can go back and listen to it and use that same info not only for future holidays but anytime you find yourself in a situation where you might be scrambling for an exit strategy to save yourself. Holiday, any day, all types of ways. This week, I'm very excited for our guest. And this isn't a great transition from what we were just talking about, but I'm just going to get into it. So this week, we touch on some pretty heavy topics. Heavy topics that are very important to the world that we live in, to our health, family members' health, world health basically and that is mental health we have sadie sutton joining us this week she is the host of the she persisted podcast which is a teen mental health podcast sadie dives into her story and talks about the struggles that she faced and We're looking at this through the lens of, okay, we're parents and how do we help our children? But not that long ago, even though it may seem long ago to someone who's young because we look old, but not that long ago, we were young people in this world trying to figure out, you know, life. I mean, we're still trying to figure it out. 60 years ago or something. For me, it was like 325 years ago, (laughs) but trying to figure out life and In this interview, there is a moment that Sadie mentions that I think is really important and something I wanted to reiterate for the audience. When Sadie talks about her struggles and I asked, "When, when was the moment that you realized that you needed help or something was going on? And she said that she didn't realize it. It was actually a medical provider that shared with her like, Hey, you have, you know, you have this issue that we need to get you help for. And as parents or as adults, or just as people moving through the world that may see other people who are struggling, sometimes other people that are struggling don't know that they are struggling. They don't realize it. Maybe they don't have the perspective. Maybe they can't see like you see them in a certain way and maybe you're picking up on it but they don't even realize it. They're almost like spiraling and it just feels like their life. Now, I haven't talked about my mental health experiences. Jason hasn't really talked about his on this podcast, but we both, I mean, we've lived life. We have these experiences Maybe one day, maybe one episode, we'll dive into them. We didn't dive into it here. But I can say as a young child, I, like a very, very young child, toddler, uh, I struggled with issues and I'm very grateful that my parents took action because as a child that was that young, 
I didn't know that what I was experiencing was different than what other children experience. And I think a lot of people could find themselves in those situations. If you're a parent and you see this within your child, your child may not realize that what they're going through and the feelings that they feel, I don't want to use the term like normal are not normal, but are not the direction that you may want to see their life transpiring. And Sadie's really solid with some tips and tactics for parents uh, when they come across having a child who is going through something life altering that, yeah, they're, they might not be aware of. They just don't even know anything different because they have no perspective. They're just little beings, you know? And as parents, like there's a lot that's on your plate, not even just as parents, just as adults in the world, there's a lot that's on your plate. And there are some different tips and tools that I wanted to share that I use to try to help keep myself in check now because I am very prone to struggling. And a couple different things, I'll say this, but I'm saying it with a grain of salt right now. You might hear me laughing a little bit. It's not funny, but it's true is for me, I'm, I'm just going to roll these out. Something that's very important to me is sleep and getting like nine and a half hours of sleep a night. Now I, I laugh because I think on average we're waking up between three to five times a night right now. So like getting nine and a half hours feels almost impossible, but sleep is like, if I have to choose between sleeping and working out, if, if you're in a situation where you have to make a choice for some reason, I would choose sleep every time. It, it's just, there's so much that we don't understand about what happens while we're sleeping, but all of us know what a night of bad sleep does and how we feel the next day. It's like, if you have a bad workout, you have a bad workout, but like if you have a bad night of sleep, that affects you for many days. Like a lot of times you don't recover. I mean, I haven't had a good night's sleep in like four years, so I don't know. <laughs> right. And we started this podcast, so look at our mental capabilities, yeah, okay? Right. <laughs> They're lacking. <laughs> so sleep, number one. Number two for me is definitely movement every day and trying to have a little bit of movement outside in sunshine. Granted, we live in SoCal, so it's it's very sunny, but trying to get outside in the sun and even if it's a walk, even if it's 10 minutes around the block, really important you don't have to have you know a crazy hit workout every day but getting that time to move your body number three for me setting a time limit on social media i actually set a parameter on my phone that allows me i won't share the amount but uh you know 17 it, hours it works after she's been on for 17 <laughs> hours it forces her to stop yeah and so you can set that like <laughs> let's say you let's say that you um check like three or four different social apps a day like if you're on facebook and twitter and instagram and tiktok and you're like you know what between those i only want to be on these for one hour a day uh, you can create a setting in your phone that'll limit that for you so i did that for myself with Instagram and TikTok. I don't always abide by it. I'm like, ignore, ignore for another 15 minutes, but it's helpful because it does put me in check a little bit because sometimes that mindless scrolling, it does not make you feel very good. It's the 2021 version of a snooze button. And number four is time by myself. Now this is more because I'm an introvert, but if I'm constantly putting energy out all day, all the time, not that I do that, I work from home. Um, I'm, I'm probably more like reclusive and isolated than I need to be, but we do have children and that 10 minute walk around the block in the middle of the day, if I don't take my phone with me and if I just set it on my desk and I'm like, I'm going for a 10 minute walk and I'm by myself and my brain just has a short break, that is helpful. And for me, like these are just really four simple items, sleep, movement, limiting my time on social media, time by myself. Those are some excellent tips, Shug, and you know, Sadie actually touches on a couple of those in the podcast, so why don't we hear a little bit about our guest for today? Yes, Sadie Sutton is our guest today and the host of She Persisted, a teen mental health podcast. Sadie created the podcast at 16 years old after a year and a half of intensive treatment for severe depression and anxiety. Sadie's now 18 and a freshman at UPenn with a plan to study psychology, and We'll dive into a lot of the details 
behind her experience and that intensive treatment. But we mentioned this before, if you or anyone you know is struggling with mental health and you're unsure where to turn, of course, there are so many resources that you can turn to. But Sadie does have a resources page on her website, shepersistedpodcast.com. That has a lot of great options that you could act on now if you need to. All right, so Vibe Hive, let's welcome Sadie to the show. Hi, Sadie. I'm Jason, and this is Katie from the Elevate the Vibe podcast. <laughs> welcome to our podcast. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, a little short introduction, who you are, and all that fun stuff. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here today. Um, so I'm Sadie. I'm the host of She Persisted, which is a teen mental health podcast. Um, I'm an 18-year-old at the University of Pennsylvania, and I want to go into clinical psychology. So tons of psychology classes, all of that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, in my free time, I'm either doing podcasting or social media management, all of that kind of fun stuff. Um, yeah. Yeah, you have like a full-blown business outside of being in school. So it's probably like school is a lot. So you are an incoming freshman at UPenn mm -hmm. and you're studying clinical psychology. We'll get into the little a little bit about that and your reason why. But yeah. I mean, making that transition from being a student in high school to a college student is like a very... It's it's a big transition, regardless of how prepared you feel for it. That's mm -hmm. a big shift. It's crazy. I love it. I definitely like the independence, and it's it's just my favorite thing. But it's it's I've never worked so hard in my entire life. Like the first couple of weeks, I was like, I'm so busy, I don't have time to breathe. Um, and so you have to be really effective and intentional with how you're spending your time. But it's 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 the best but very busy very overwhelming sometimes and so important to make sure you're taking care of your mental health or it's just not possible to maintain and you so you just mentioned men mental health and mm -hmm. you're studying psychology so for any member of the audience who may be unfamiliar with you and your backstory can you give a little bit of insight into why you started she persisted how your story began and where you are today yeah. So I first noticed that I was struggling with depression and anxiety during the tail end of my middle school years, like seventh and eighth grade. Um, and it escalated very quickly. Like once I realized I was depressed, I immediately started doing lots of different treatment options, whether that was like inpatient or outpatient. And looking back, the more I kind of explore, especially through the podcast, depression and anxiety and all of these things, the more I can understand that they're environmental in many cases and that they slowly build over time. But for me, it was like, this is just my norm. This is just how life works. And then it was like, whoa, apparently this isn't normal. Um, and so that was quite a shift. Um, but I was really, really struggling. And I tried everything you can imagine um, at home, whether that was inpatient, group therapy, individual therapy, family therapy, DBT, CBT, you name it. I was, I was trying it and I didn't see a shift in my mood. I was still really lonely and hopeless. And I, all of these different things were messed up, whether it was sleep or diet or relationships. Um, everything was just falling apart. And so when I look back, I can kind of pinpoint and be like, okay, this wasn't working because I was going through the motions of therapy and I was going to appointments because I felt like I had to, or my parents told me to, or clinicians said that this was what would be the next step, but I didn't believe that it was going to work. I thought that I was just, my norm was depression. And that was what was, what my life was going to look like for the rest of my life. And for a 13 year old, that's like a very depressing outlook to have. And, um, so what was really pivotal and what changed things for me was a residential program that I did right outside of Boston called Three East at McLean Hospital. Um, and I spent 14 weeks there. And I remember I got there, my parents and I flew across the country and I was terrified. I remember Googling it and I was like, so this is what like the hospital that girl interrupted is based on. What the heck is happening? I was like, used to be an asylum. Great. This is going to be awesome. Um, and I was just terrified. Um, I was 14 at that point. Um, my parents and I flew across the country with all of my bags. Of course, I overpacked and 
we got there and we sat in this room with um, 12 or 14 clinicians and they asked me all these questions. And one of the first questions they asked, they were like, do you want your parents to be here? And I was like, absolutely not. <laughs> Kicked them out immediately. They just flown like six hours across the country, dropped everything to get me treatment um, for, for my mental health. And I was like, no, I don't want them in the room. This is their fault. Um, and that was, is a great kind of depiction of what my relationship looked like with them a lot of the time. Um, because I was so young and all of my memories were of having low mood and feeling this way, I really put the blame on them. And I believed that it was their fault. And I was like, you raised me. Like, I haven't had a lot of choices in my life beyond like little things. So this must be your fault. And so, um, there was a lot of tension there. And so one of the first questions that I was asked at, at residential was if I wanted to be there. And I was like, no brainer. No, of course I do not want to be here. I've been told that this is the next step and that I have to be here, but I don't want to be here. And I've done this before. I've done DBT. I've done therapy. And why is this going to be different? It's not going to work. And one of the, the doctors in the room, I remember he looked at me and I actually had him on my podcast like two years after um, that whole journey, which was a really cool full circle moment. Um, but he was like, I don't want to like, I don't remember exactly what he said, but he's basically like, I don't want to like invalidate your experience, but like, you're not unique here. Like we, our thing is helping teenagers that are struggling with depression and anxiety. Like this is exactly what we do. We see people like you all the time. Um, and we can help you. And I know that we will help you, but this isn't going to work unless you want to be here and you see the wisdom in, in treatment. And so I needed to logically understand that dialectical behavioral therapy was a, a clinical, um, a clinically proven treatment for depression and anxiety, and then emotionally be invested in that experience. And so for the first time I, trusted others enough to help me get better, um, which I'd never done before. I didn't believe that anyone was capable of helping me. And I thought that I was just messed up the way that I, that I was, and I was destined to be like that forever. And so, um, that was the first time that I trusted others enough to help me on my journey. Um, and the other thing was that I had enough self-compassion and love, which I could barely cultivate um, because my self-esteem was so low at that point, but I just barely managed to be like, okay, I want something better for myself. And I don't know how I'm going to get there, but I could imagine that maybe I'd want a life where I wanted to live and I wanted to be on this planet. And then I looked forward to things. They had relationships that supported me. And I don't know what that looks like or what that feels like, but I want that for myself if it's possible. Um, and from there, it was a lot of self-work, whether it was actually having a consistent sleep schedule um, or maintaining um, basic needs, whether that was getting outside and maintaining my diet and doing family therapy to build a relationship with my parents um, and understanding what happened when I was experiencing anxiety and like what the thought patterns were and being like, okay, like this is something that I'm experiencing, but this thing isn't me and kind of differentiating those two things. Um, and unpacking all the core belief systems that were at play there. And I, I left 14 weeks later for the first time in years, not feeling suicidal and not feeling depressed. And it was a really, it was a crazy shift because again, that had been my norm for so long. And my eyes were kind of open to like, wow, like life doesn't have to look like this. Um, and I believed it actually, because I was experiencing it. And so after that, I did 14 months of treatment at a therapeutic boarding school to kind of maintain that big progress that was made. Um, and at the end of that, I looked back at that first meeting with those clinicians when they were like, you have to see the wisdom in this. And that day, my dad had been like, Sadie, you should start a podcast. And again, I hated them at that point. I was like, ah, that's stupid. Absolutely not. I will not be starting a podcast. Um, and he even like asked the doctors, he was like, can she have a recording device here? And they were like, sir, that is against HIPAA. She cannot have a recording device here. What are you talking about? I was like mortified. I was like, I have to live with these people for months. Like dad, how could you possibly ask that? It was so embarrassing. But I, a year and a half later, I was like, okay, maybe he's onto something. Like if I, this person that literally believed that they were deserving of being depressed and that nothing would ever change could live a life that I loved and cared about and look forward to things in, then anyone could do it. And I felt that there was a huge lack of teenagers 
that were fully recovered, um, that were being like, hey, it's possible. And I am proof that that's possible. Um, and then the third thing at play was that I was so lucky. My parents dropped everything. I was able to take a semester off of school and have access to all of these resources that aren't necessarily as readily accessible. And I, as I was learning these skills, I was like, these would have been so helpful earlier on in my journey. Like, yes, they were life-saving for me, but they didn't have to be life-saving if I'd implemented them like four years before. And so I wanted to share those with other teenagers um, because I knew that they would be helpful. And so those three things led me to want to share my story. And then it was kind of just, how am I going to do that? And there, every single teen had an Instagram. So many people were doing YouTube and podcasting really was uh, a niche that had it didn't have as many teen creators and I was like okay I'll try it and I was terrible at first the interviews were god-awful the sound quality like would make your ears bleed I always tell everyone not to listen to those because it's like so embarrassing and it just will turn them off to podcasts as a whole but mine also forever um but it it was it was a great experience and it helped me learn to to tell my story in a way that um, resonates with people and that is more relatable because again a lot of the things that I went through aren't typical for teenagers to like go through intensive treatment and leave school for a semester and be hospitalized four times but we always ex all experience these emotions of depression and loneliness and isolation and hopelessness and so um, it was really a gift to be able to have that time with like zero listeners to be able to formulate that story and learn how to interview others and here we are like two and a half years later with 70 eight episodes, 77, something like that. Um, and, and tons and tons of mental health conversations, um, out there for people to listen to. Um, but yeah, that's a little bit why I started. She persisted. And it's amazing that you have taken a topic that can be typically reserved for people that are doctors or they can make it very dry. It's like, it's very, it's very dry. It doesn't seem approachable. It seems scary. And you're breaking through a lot of that noise and clutter to be able to have a conversation with someone that is closer in age to you and more aligned with the life experiences that you have. Like as adults, like we have, you know, we have our experiences when we were younger and we were growing up. Granted, there's different dynamics now. Like when we were growing up, for us, social media was something that started to proliferate when we were in college. Like we didn't have access to that in middle school and high school. Mm -hmm. So that's a, that's a completely different dynamic that affects mental health tremendously now. But also like we understand the feelings, like the feelings are still the same. And, and just because you get older, you know, everybody says like older and wiser. Well, you don't always get wiser. Not the case for me at all, Sadie. Sorry. <laughs> and then you do, you have children. Like we have two young children. And that's the reason that we started this podcast is because we wanted to speak with experts on how to help raise children in the world so that when they start to gain their independence and they can go out and be human beings that they're like hopefully decent people, you know what I mean? And we try, we'll try to like take all that information and share it. And like from a parent's point of view, well, hold on, I'll, <laughs> I'll back up a little bit. When you were younger and you were in this place where you were feeling the emotions that you felt, like you said, towards the end of middle school, did you have that conversation with your parents? Did you feel comfortable enough to have a conversation with them to say like, Hey, listen, I'm, I'm struggling. I'm starting to recognize that I'm struggling. Or did they see signs and they said, Hey, Sadie, we notice this and we think that there are some opportunities that we want to explore with you. Yeah, it was definitely, they noticed and I was kind of backed into a corner and not necessarily in a bad way because it was the support that I needed. But I remember the first time that I ever like, actually, I'd been doing like counseling on an outpatient basis for like navigating like conflict that came up, like little things, but not like for my mental health because something was really going on. Um, but I remember the first time that I ever actually like saw a doctor for potentially depression or anxiety, I went to my pediatrician and he like asked all the questions like, are you having lower mood? How is your sleep? Blah, 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 blah. And I like did the questions and he was like, so you're severely depressed. And I was like, 
great. Awesome. Um, and he obviously I was not that enthusiastic about it. I was like tearful and so isolated and um apathetic to everything that I was experiencing. I was numb. I I was a mess. Um, but he basically said, You are, are really struggling. And so you're gonna go to a psychiatrist appointment that your mom has made for you later today. And it's really important that you go to this. And if if you don't do that, you're gonna um head over to the local hospital and spend some time in inpatient because that's the level of support that you need if you're not able to go to this appointment. Um, and I ended up going to the psychiatrist appointment, just completely shut down and didn't say anything for the entire hour. And I went to the emergency room after that um, and spent like seven or 10 days in intensive treatment to just kind of de-crisis from how depressed I was at that point. Um, I, I was numb to everything. I was so isolated. I before that point, hadn't really acknowledged that I was depressed. Like I just, again, thought it was the norm. Um, and so that is obviously not typical for when people realize they're depressed. And I think it was part of it was that I was so young. I wasn't as aware of various mental health challenges people can navigate and what to be aware of. Um, I was 13 the first time I was in the hospital. Um, and so it was definitely my parents noticed that I, I wasn't sleeping and I was really very very sad we were having tons of conflict I was really isolated from my my friends and everything was was falling apart um I think what also did lead to that is um I had these really strong core beliefs that I wasn't deserving of love um and that I would never be good enough for my parents and so I would look at every interaction we had to support that in some way um what was the evidence that supported these beliefs that I so firmly believed? And so while that was obviously not helping our relationship, um, there was also a lot of ways as I was growing up that I felt really invalidated or not seen. And I experienced my emotions very strongly and I still do. And I didn't feel like there was the space um, for that to be like seen and heard. And I'm one of four kids. So um, like, obviously that's adds to it. Like there can't be this giant space for someone to process and go through these things. Um, but all of those kind of blended together and, and led to the point where I have the relationship with my parents where I would go to them and be like, hey, I'm struggling. I remember when I was doing residential, we had this game, game using as a, le a loose term, um, and it was a, a family therapy assignment. And we this we called it the Tourette's game, which obviously is a terrible name. I should rename it when I talked about it in podcast interviews. Um, but what would happen is we would be at dinner or having a conversation and I was supposed to blurt out what I was feeling because it was so emotionally difficult and blocked for me to be able to say what I was feeling that I couldn't be like, hey, I'm feeling anxious right now. Even if I was like having a panic attack, it couldn't be like, I'm really struggling. Um, so I had to start just like blurting out what I was feeling at socially inappropriate times because thinking about it or forming the sentence was too much for me. And so that line of communication and, and openness definitely wasn't there. And it's something I still struggle with. Like, I remember they came and visited a couple of weeks ago and obviously I'm no longer struggling at the, where I was earlier, but I hadn't even communicated to them like how stressed I was or the fact that I was like, I've never worked this hard in my entire life and I'm working a full-time job and, and run and having a podcast and I'm doing school at a really hard university. Um, and I just like hadn't voiced that to them. And so I don't think they understood that, um, which of course they wouldn't understand because I hadn't told them, but it's just something that doesn't come naturally in our relationship. And so that obviously meant that as I got more and more depressed, I wasn't going to go to them and be like, hey, I need help. It was something that we had to work on and I had to learn how to do and something that was really important to have in place before I went home um, after treatment. And you talked about when you were receiving treatment, you mentioned the acronym DBT, mm -hmm. Dialectic Behavioral Therapy, mm -hmm. or Dialectic Behavior Therapy. Dialectical Behavioral Therapy. Dialectical Behavioral Therapy. <laughs> Can you share a little bit more about that type of therapy and what that approach is like? Yes. So DBT or Dialectical Behavioral Therapy was initially developed by a woman named Marsha Linehan. And it was initially made for adults that were severely struggling with borderline personality disorder and suicidality. 
Um, and there's tons of studies out there. If you are a more science-minded person and want to read that, obviously, I am very much oversimplifying and I don't know the whole thing myself. Um, but basically, when we look at borderline personality disorder, which is characterized by a bunch of different traits that you have to like meet a certain amount of them to um, be diagnosed for, but it's things like low mood um, and dysfunctional relationships and low self-esteem and feeling insecure, um, all of these kinds of things. And so what happens is we see a lot of these characteristics and other diagnoses. Um, and so since DBT was initially developed, there have been dozens of studies showing its effectiveness for things like depression and anxiety in adolescence and eating disorders. Um, and I'm almost positive OCD as well, but you name it, they've tried um, DBT in some form as a, as a treatment because it is so clinically effective for borderline personality disorder and depression and anxiety. And it's to the point where you go in and it's shown to decrease feelings of depression. It's shown to decrease um, suicidal ideation. And so that was something that really appealed to my parents was this is evidence-based. This is going to help her. It's not like she'll like go into this office and think, maybe she'll talk about her feelings and maybe that'll help. It's like, this is a step-by-step -step protocol for treatment that is proven to work and in her demographic for what she's struggling with. Um, so 3East, the residential program I talked about is specifically a DBT program for adolescent girls. They have a boys program as well, um, but it's for adolescent girls struggling with depression and anxiety. And they do have some um, older girls that um, either are on track to meet the criteria for borderline personality disorder or do, but you can't diagnose that early. So it's really a lot of depression and anxiety that they're working with. Um, but what DBT is, I kind of loosely talked about it being a protocol is a bunch of different components. The first, which is what I talk the most about on the podcast and post-treatment is the skills. And so it's this giant book. It's like a really fat binder um, of skills education. And it's broken down into different modules, which are interpersonal effectiveness, emotion regulation, distress tolerance, and mindfulness. And especially now that I'm like years out from initially learning these skills, I realize um, how much these skills are used in people's lives when they're navigating the world effectively and skillfully and in a way that feels good to them. Most people are able to, I'm not, I don't want to say most people, but um, it's pretty common to be able to stay on top of like your sleep and your diet and your exercise. And most people are able to validate someone when they come to them and are like, hey, I'm struggling. The response is like, I'm here for you. I get that. I'm sorry you're experiencing that. But when we're really, really struggling, we tend to develop tons of maladaptive coping mechanisms. Um, and we kind of get further and further away from this skillful way of living that allows us to be effective and, and maintain that way of living. Maladaptive coping mechanisms have lots of consequences and aren't sustainable for a long period of time. Um, so a lot of the skills in DBT are things people are already doing if they're being skillful and effective. Um, but it teaches people that have moved further away from that and become maladaptive to like get back to those roots and relearn how to be effective in your relationships and tolerating your distress and regulating your emotions and in staying present and living in the moment because you forget how to do all those things when you're so consumed by the suffering. Um, so that's one part of DBT is these skills um, and the skills education. And the next part is individual therapy. So you're working with a therapist. If you're ad an adolescent, a lot of the time you're doing family therapy as well, but you're working through um, like mindsets, behaviors that might've popped up, conflict that arises um, and more typical like talk therapy. If you're doing it on an outpatient basis, you're also doing phone coaching. So if you're having a moment of distress, you can call and get coaching as far as what skills to use. How can I navigate this? And the final thing, is that your therapist is working on a board of other DBT clinicians. So you're constantly making sure in a collaborative sense that you are doing DBT as it's clinically shown to be effective um, to get the most out of it. And, and that's also based on the core belief in DBT that therapists need support too. And um, they need help and guidance and all that kind of stuff. So his skills are really amazing because no matter what stage of life you're in, they can be effective and, and relevant. And one of my favorites that I like to scare is, share is the tip scale. Um, and I like it so much because you can't think mm, that doesn't work. Like, I feel like this is a very common thing with talk therapy or people are like, that's not work for me. Like, it's not going to work. Like, that's just not how I process things. 
What TIP is, is an acronym that stands for Temperature, Intense Exercise, Pace Breathing, Impaired Muscle Relaxation. Um, and it's in the Distress um, Tolerance Module. So you use it in a crisis scenario, whether you're like super angry or you're super sad, maybe you're having a panic attack. And it lowers your physiological symptoms of distress. So say you're having a panic attack, like you're, you're breathing very quickly, your heart rate is elevated, you might be shaking, all of these different things. And so what you do for the temperature part of it is optimally you would submerge your face in a bowl of cold ice water, which obviously isn't very practical. So you could also do like cold water underneath your eyes or on your wrists, wrists um, or use an ice pack. Um, but what it does is it stimulates your mammalian diving reflex and we can't breathe underwater naturally. So when our, our bodies come into contact with cold water and our vagus nerve is stimulated, um, our bodies have this thing in place called your mammalian diving reflex to lower your heart rate and lower your breathing rate so you don't drown. And so the same thing works when you're having a panic attack and you put ice water underneath your eyes. Your vagus nerve is stimulated, your body lowers your heart rate, it lowers your breathing rate so that you don't drown, but it also decreases those physical symptoms of distress, which are so overwhelming because you are in fight or flight mode, your body is trying to survive. So you're not able to ration through and be like, okay, like this is a good time for me to go on a walk to calm down. Or I'm having a panic attack. Let's drink some water. You're just like, what the heck is going on? I feel like I'm dying. So that's where TIP is really great because you decrease those physiological symptoms and then you can plan an effective way to cope through the situation. Um, the rest of the acronym is intense exercise. So you're raising your heart rate past where it's elevated when you're having the panic attack. So whether that's like sprints or you're doing like squats or you're like boxing, something like that. Um, and your body can't maintain that level of physical output for a long period of time. So it does what it always does when you go and exercise, which is lower your heart rate back to its normal um, resting rate, because otherwise you would have a heart attack. And so when you're having a panic attack and you do exercise, your body lowers your heart rate past where it was at when you're having the panic attack. Um, and similar idea for intense and not intense, um, pace breathing, impaired muscle relaxation. With pace breathing, you're lowering your um, breathing rate, which in turn lowers your heart rate. Super grounding um, and helpful to kind of just get through that like overwhelm of having physical symptoms of anxiety. And then paired muscle relaxation, you're doing um, deep breathing, but as you inhale, you clench your muscles. And as you exhale, you release it. And you're letting go of the additional stress and tension that you've been holding from that anxiety, whether that's like in your fists being clenched or in your shoulders, your back, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and so it's things like that, that if you are skillful and effective in navigating life, when you feel anxiety, you do deep breathing, you do these skills to lower that distress. But when we're so overwhelmed by these feelings all the time, we kind of forget how to navigate that effectively. And so DBT breaks it down on a really micro level to teach you how to effectively navigate your life in a way that that serves you. Um, and so that's one skill from the distress tolerance module. And there's like dozens in every single module. Again, it's like a huge book of worksheet sheets and lessons and ways you can practice. Um, but it's, it's an amazing resource and something that's relevant to anyone, no matter what they're struggling with. Um, so yeah. That's a lot to unpack there. Sorry. Awesome. I mean, it's a lot amazing. of it. I mean, are, you sure you're, are you sure you're there to be a student or you're not there to be a professor? Because that I'm was sure. a lot. That's amazing. I am, I am struggling along with everyone else in all of my classes. I'm like, what's going on? Um, <sighs> but yeah. When you think about therapy or, or traditional modules for seeking help, therapy is a big piece of that. And you mentioned talk therapy, and that doesn't always work for everyone. Have you experienced or could you share with the audience different tips or ways that you can figure out how to find a therapist that works well with you? Mm -hmm. Like, and very quickly because it's like, okay, therapy is expensive. And yeah. if you are someone who maybe you're, maybe you're just starting out on your own, you're a young adult and you're you know, you have a, a salary, you've, you've started a job and it's, it's not a crazy amount. So you have limited income, but you really want to do this. Or maybe you are a, a child that is under your parents' insurance still, or a, a, you know, a young person under your parents' insurance. And it's like, how do I approach them about something like this 
when it's costly and I don't really know if it'll work and I mm-hmm. need to determine like how do I find a therapist that I connect with quickly because you you touched on a point where it's like the trust piece do you yeah. trust this person because it takes a long time to build friendships it takes a long time to build relationships with anyone and it's like how am I supposed to just go into a room with someone and automatically have trust with them and what if we don't actually have a connection and then I spend six months with them and I'm like, this isn't working. And then you just feel like, well, therapy isn't working. It's like, well, maybe it's actually just the therapist you were working with wasn't the right fit for you. A hundred percent. I think there's a lot of things that you can do on your end, um, which I think is great because we can't change other people. We can only change ourselves. Um, the first thing that I would definitely recommend, especially for adolescents, um, is being involved in the role of choosing your therapist. We automatically make certain judgments about people based on their like their personality their appearance so if you like I'll give an example of one of my friends she was meeting with this like super old therapist who just like didn't relate to her at all like she went into this therapy therapy session and she was like how do I navigate anxiety and the therapist was like oh let me research that I'll get back to you like I was like I'm sorry where did you find this woman um but If you are going into a therapy session with the preconceived notion like, oh, I'm not going to get along with this person. I don't like this person. They don't relate to me. The way that you interact with them is you're not going to get as much out of it if you're going into it. Like, I think that I could really connect with this person. So choosing a clinician that you feel good about and that you think you can relate to and identify with is huge. Um, And then going into the first session, you have a better mindset. You are more open. Um, Another great piece of advice is to set an agenda or intention for your therapy session. So throughout the week, if things are coming up, write it down on your notes app, write it down on a piece of paper. Like if you're like, I'm going to sleep really late. I don't know what's happening here. Or I had this really bad argument with my parents or my friend and I want to unpack this. Um, Writing that down and making sure that you're talking about the things that you want to talk about in your session is huge. Um, And then you leave the session feeling like I touched on everything I wanted to touch on. Like this feels good. This feels effective rather than going in being like, I don't know what I want to talk about. And then you leave and you're like, we didn't talk about anything I wanted to talk about, but you didn't bring anything. So of course you didn't talk about those things. Um, So that's another huge one. Um, I would always say it's good to give it like three to four sessions um, with a therapist to kind of see how things work. Um, and then from there, if you're just like, this isn't a fit, this is making me feel worse after, or I don't feel seen or validated, you could send a great, you could send a nice email, you could tell them in person, like, this isn't a great fit and I want to switch. I really do think there's something to be said for like long-term building that relationship. I know that for me, like my therapist that I just stopped working with, um, at home before I went to college, like I remember starting sessions with her and being like, this isn't as groundbreaking as it was when I was in treatment and just like unpacking everything that had gone on for the last 18 years of my life. Um, it wasn't bad, but I was like, eh, like this isn't game changing. But as I stopped working with her, I was like so sad. I was like, she helped me in so many ways. She helped me be so grateful and, and be more present in my life. And be more effective internally rather than like trying to lean on other people for that. And I like realized how much she helped me, how much we connected. And that was like two years of work that led to that like really strong relationship. Like if you'd asked me a month in, I would have been like, maybe like that wouldn't have been the same um, feedback that I would have given. Um, But obviously if you're not having a good vibe with the clinician, you can tell and it's worth, it's worth switching. Like we had a good vibe. We were getting along. It just, I wasn't like, wow, I just realized that I believe I don't deserve love. Like that was what I was initially experiencing in treatment. And then I was like, oh, we talked this week about me having this stressful test coming up. So it was just like different. Um, I think another really important thing to remember is that people, including therapists, are in our lives for a reason, a season, or a lifetime. And I think for therapists, especially, it's like a reason or a season. And so you can grow out of working with a certain therapist or they're there for a reason to help you work through some part of your, your life. And maybe you're ready to move on for someone else that can help you navigate new challenges as you grow and mature. Um, and then the last piece of advice that I would give, I 
think at least for my subject subjective experience, whenever I go into a therapist's office and there's that like thing in the back of my head, that's like nagging me where I'm like, I want to talk about this. Like, this is what I have to bring to the table. You are doing, giving yourself the greatest gift. If you're just 100% open and bring that to the therapist, um, you're going to get more out of the session. You're going to felt seat going to be you're going to feel seen and heard um, and address what you want to. So being 100% open, um, however you can, you'll just get more out of the relationship. Um, But yeah, boiling that down, it's being involved in choosing your clinician, accepting when there's just not a vibe and a connection after like three to four sessions and moving on, but also giving the relationship time to grow if you do feel like there's potential there. Um, setting intentions um, for your session and kind of an agenda and going over that at the beginning of the session so you're both on the same page about what you want to cover. Um, being 100% open with your therapist as much as you can. Um, I think that was all of the all of the tips, but yeah. The idea of having a relationship with your therapist as someone who maybe isn't 18 years old And there's that dynamic then of like, I want to be able to trust and share with you and share in confidentiality. And of course there's HIPAA violations, Mm -hmm. but then also there probably is a point where as a therapist, they may need to engage the parents. Mm -hmm. And how does that relationship work and that dynamic work where someone who's trying to feel comfortable enough to share, but you know, the majority of the time, not every single person that goes to therapy as a child is going because of something that happened with their parents. But a lot of times family dynamics just play a big piece in Mm -hmm. the reason that you're in therapy because there's, you know, there's some reason that you are coming up against these, these issues. And as a young person, you just can't go out and solve them like you would want because you're living with your parents who have requirements of you and, and rules and regulations. And it's like, well, I would want to do something this way, but I can't. So how does that work with being, you know, not, not a legal adult yet and the, the therapist sharing what's okay to share and then bringing mm-hmm. the parents in at a certain point? Yeah. So there's a couple of like HIPAA things um, that are worth mentioning. The first is that your therapist should only be sharing with your parent, guardian, or law enforcement or more professionals if you're harmed to yourself or someone else or something um, illegal has happened. Like, not like you, like, trespassed on a property, but, like, if there's been some sort of, like, assault situation. A good therapist, subjectively, like, obviously that's a loose term, I feel will engage you in that process and will ask if you're okay with them sharing and bringing in this third party um, and giving you that autonomy to make that decision with them. Um, I feel like I've had pretty good experiences with all of my therapists um, as I've been under 18 and my my parents were involved in some extent. And when parents do need to be um, involved, they've all been really open with their dialogue and being like, okay, like this is what I'm thinking about bringing up. Like, do you want to be here for the conversation? That's a great thing um, that you're like, this is a green flag for this therapist that they're asking if I want to be here to hear what's happening. Um, Another thing is like asking you like, okay, like what do you feel like is important to share with your parent or do you want to be the one to talk about this with them? Um, And I think, uh, again, a a good therapist will at the beginning of your sessions kind of lay out what the situations are where they might need to talk to your parents about something or where that might be a dynamic that's at play. Um, But there should be an open dialogue um, between the therapist and the client about what may be shared or will be shared and that the client is entitled to be able to be in the room or on the zoom when that conversation happens because at the end of the day in an ethical situation the therapist's client is the child not the parent like yes the parent is giving the credit card or the insurance card but the therapist's primary interest and and concern is the child because that's who they're working with that's the patient not the parent um and so I think a lot of the responsibility here is on the therapist to be ethical and effective um, with both the the client and the parent and set boundaries with the parent. If the parent's being like, what are you talking about in the session? Like, you need to tell me. The therapist is like, that's not how this works. Like, I am a doctor, just like 
you can't figure out what other patients in your doctor's office are talking about with their doctor. Same thing for therapy. Um, so a lot of the responsibility should be on the therapist, but if you're in a situation where you're like, this doesn't seem right, um, just remember that your therapist should never be telling your parents anything without your permission, unless you are harmed yourself or other people. And they don't think you're going to be able to keep yourself safe. Um, and if there is a conversation that they're having with your parents, it's always a good practice for them to ask if you want to be there, what you feel comfortable with sharing. And if you're okay with them having that dialogue. I think that that is probably a key also to building the trust and like building 100%. the trust long-term because mm -hmm. then it's like, I can in confidentiality come to you with something and know mm -hmm. that you really do have my best interest yeah. at hand. Mm -hmm. And I know that you're looking out for me. Like you're saying, mm -hmm. it's like, are you looking out for me or are you looking out for the person yeah. who's swiping their credit card at like the Like a good the relationship. Like, of course, like it's different for everyone, but like, I always have the feeling like they're on my team. Like, obviously yeah. my parents and I aren't on different teams, but I'm like, if it came down to it, like my therapist is sitting in my corner and she knows that I am right. Like, obviously not, it's more nuanced than that, but I like <laughs> have that trust in her that she, she believes in, believes in me and, um, is there to support me and will like step in and be like, Hey, like, this isn't what's going on here. Like, this is the boundary I'm setting. And like, yes, you're the one paying for the session, but my client is, is Sadie and she's my primary interest here. But yeah. If there are young people that are out there, or even if there are parents listening that maybe think that their child is on a path where they may need help, but they may not necessarily think that they need therapy. Like maybe they're just starting to develop habits. It's it's not something concrete that they see and it would be hard for the parent to approach the child, but it's like, you know, I'm starting to see signs as the parent because, it, you know, you just have time and you've been able to pull back and you've had your own life experiences and you're like, I, I know that some of these behaviors and habits can lead down a path of you eventually getting to a place where, you, you know, you're not going to feel great about mm -hmm. yourself and your life and, and the situation that you're in. So if there's young people that maybe feel that way or parents that are noticing it, is there like a set of tools or like a protocol that you could recommend that maybe even like, you know, middle schoolers or, I mean, it could be even adults. It's, it's not just young people. It's like, you know, like getting X amount of hours of sleep, writing down mm -hmm. what you're grateful for. It's just these preemptive tasks that you have in your back pocket that help to keep you mentally regulated so you don't find yourself sinking mm -hmm. into darker yeah. places. A hundred percent. I'll first talk about um, like supporting like a kid per se that's struggling. And then I'll dive into like what my favorite like mental health maintenance tips are um for your kid I think that the most important tool that you have and the most power you have is your relationship um just like if you have a panic attack for the first time you can't be expected to know how to like use your deep breathing and dunk your face into a bucket of ice like how would you possibly know that you've never experienced that um you need to teach yourself those skills preemptively so that when you do navigate that challenge you know how to do that effectively i think it's the same thing with the relationship um if you're not putting in the work before things get bad or before either like the parent is having a rough day or the child's having a rough day why would you expect it to like magically be like healthy communication and like two way support? Like that's just like, you're, you're fooling yourself if you think that. Um, so creating the dialogue, the communication styles, the support that you want in a worst case scenario. Um, so being there for your child, to like listen and be like, hey, do you want advice or do you just want me to be here for you? Um, so they know when they come to you with like a tougher situation that you won't necessarily be like, here's my advice. You're doing this wrong. This is what you should do instead. They're like, I know my parent will just be here for me. And that feels great. Um so really just strengthening that relationship, letting them know that they're loved no matter what, no matter what they're experiencing or going through, what choices they've made, they're still loved, loved and deserving of that love and that healthy relationship. Um, uh, validation is huge, creating space for their emotions, um, letting them know that their emotions are and beliefs and uh, thoughts are valid and okay, even if you don't necessarily agree with the behavior. Um, so really just having that open stream of communication and building that relationship that you want. 
um, to have in case something goes goes haywire. Um, and I think that's that's all you can hope for because then when something does go badly, you've made you've given that foundation and you've done as much as you can for them to come to you and for you to be a good support system. And then when they do come to you, you can be like, do you want support? Do you want advice? What can I do? How can I help? Um, and, and you can be there to as that resource and have that open communication, which I think is huge and is so powerful for a teen when they're struggling. Um, as far as basic mental health maintenance tips, there's a couple. The first is um, in DBT, it's called the PLEASE scale. And this is one that if you're living effectively, you're already doing, and it's taking care of physical illness. So you're going to the doctor when you need to, you're taking prescribed medications if that's something that you're doing. Um, you are staying on top of both your um, diet and exercise. So you're getting enough movement to like make you feel good, have those endorphins. You are eating in a way that um, doesn't add emotional vulnerability to you. Um, and so you're not eating all like processed or like fast food because obviously that won't help your mental health. Um, you're getting enough sleep, which is so, so, so important. That's always my top mental health tip. When I actually started getting like eight hours of sleep versus when I wasn't sleeping. It was like me being suicidally depressed versus me actually functioning. It's like that big of a difference. Um, and then the other um, part of the PLEASE acronym is avoiding mood altering substances. And I, what I like to bring up for this is small things like caffeine. Um, does caffeine make you more anxious and jittery? And if you can just be mindful with that as you're navigating situations, same goes for if you're, um, you're drinking or if you're using drugs, like how does that impact your mental health? Like kind of checking in with yourself and using that same practice. Um, other mental health maintenance tips, I think relationships are huge. Having relationships that help you feel good or supportive um, and boost your mood um, is really, really, really important. And community is everything. Um, please skills, relationships. I'm trying to think what else. Um, there's another amazing skill um, in the emotion regulation module called accumulating positives. And it's that you plan moments of joy throughout your day, week, month, et cetera. And so it's different from just like organically being like, oh, I saw a flower on the street and it made me really happy. It's being like, I know that having coffee with my friend boosts my mood. So I'm planning that for next Tuesday. So when you have moments of low mood, which everyone has, you're not in that headspace. Of everything sucks. I have nothing going for me because you've accumulated all of these moments of joy. And so you're kind of um, your norm of like what your emotional um, vulnerability is like is a little bit higher than it would be if you hadn't accumulated those moments of joy. And it's a lot easier to remember if you've planned the moments and if it just like organically happened. Um, so that's another one of my favorites. And then um, I think it's really just all about being mindful of what make, is making you feel good and what's not making you feel good, whether that's a mindset or a relationship um, or how you're treating your body, um, or if you're too stressed, if you're not doing enough, um, all of those kinds of things, and then adjusting as you see fit to, to give yourself the best chance of um, feeling good mentally. If there is a key takeaway you could leave for the audience, and the audience being parents that have young children, mm -hmm. or maybe they're, you know, just, or people, they may not have children, but just... Mm -hmm. Anybody, I mean, everyone needs like mental health skills mm -hmm. <laughs> and like nobody is exempt from this. Yeah. What would be a key takeaway you would want to leave? I'll give two things. One is for parents um, with kids, which is just to truly impart the belief and the idea that you're, you as a kid are worthy and deserving of love no matter what, and that your parents will be there no matter what you're feeling or what you've done or your decisions or your behaviors, they're still there to love and support you just as you are. And that's never going to change. And I think that's huge. Um, and then the other thing would be to invest in that relationship. So it's at the point where if something does go wrong or someone is struggling, you've created that foundation to navigate it effectively. Um, instead of just being like, well, if something goes wrong, I hope they would come to me and I hope they would ask me for support. But feeling really good about like, I know that if my kid's in a tough situation or they're in a social situation, they don't feel comfortable. And I know that they will call me because they know I'm here without judgment um, and I will help them get out of the situation. If there's like a consequence that needs to happen, we'll navigate that later. But I'm just here to support them because I care about their safety. Um, so really building that foundation for the relationship um, 
in like kind of like a preventative measure so that if something does happen, you're good to go and you've taken the steps that you can to give your relationship the best chance it can at navigating the situation effectively. When it comes to resources, your site has like a a ton of great resources. (laughs) Yeah, I love it. So can you shout out your site, Mm -hmm. some of the resources that you would recommend from there, or if there's anything that maybe isn't on there as well that you would want to shout out also? Yeah, there are endless mental health resources out there. Um, My website, if you want the ones that I love, is shepersistedpodcast.com. Um, if you have a kid that is really struggling with severe depression and anxiety, I always say my residential that I went to is such a great resource, and that's 3 East McLean Hospital. Um, there are so many amazing books and podcasts out there. One of my favorites for depression is called Lost Connections by Johan Hari, and it really talks about um, depression from an environment from an environmental perspective. And I think especially for parents, like it's huge. Like it talks about um, how supported you feel in your relationships and do you have a sense of passion um, and all of these things that like we kind of like build for our kids before they, I say our kids, like I have children <laughs> that we build for kids um, before they go out into the world independently. Um, and I think it's just like very interesting to be aware of. Um, I I don't even know. I think having a therapist is a great resource, whatever that looks like for you, whether it's online therapy or in person, whether it's a preventative measure or a maintenance measure or like a crisis intervention, having a person that you can go to and navigate these really heavy things without it like impacting your relationship the next day is such a great resource. Like if you're going to a friend or a partner and being like, I'm really struggling, I'm super depressed, like obviously it's going to impact your relationship, but if you have a therapist and a professional that has all these um, professional insights and resources to process that through with, um, you can then show up in your other relationships in a more effective way. Um, So yeah, that would be another thing is to, to get professional support, no matter like what that looks like for you, even if you're like, "Mm, I don't think I need it. It's like, well, if you need it, wouldn't you be like glad that you already had that resource in place? Um, So yeah, that would probably be my like top three favorites. There is really something to what you just said where having that unbiased, like I'll I'll say like third party, you have this unbiased relationship that you can go to and it doesn't matter. Like you were saying, it can be something as small as like, hey, I feel nervous about a test coming up Mm -hmm. to something as big as like, you know, someone passing away and having to navigate that and and those emotions and it's like okay well would you rather have that relationship in place I think there's definitely I know you talk about this uh, I think it's being broken down but a a stigma around being in therapy and it's Mm -hmm. like oh well what 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 are you in therapy for and it's like well you don't have to be just for life (laughs) for anything right yeah who wouldn't want someone that they can go to Mm -hmm. on a regular basis to say Hey, I'm dealing with this or someone Mm -hmm. that it's not even, I'm dealing with this, but they just help you see and navigate life in a different way that you're not seeing from the inside out, but they're looking at from the outside in and they look at that and they say, I see, I see this path in this light. And you didn't even realize that. And you're like, oh my gosh, that's a complete breakthrough. Mm -hmm. And it, it doesn't mean that something is going on, but it's just like one more tool in your toolbox for navigating life. Oh, 100%. I couldn't agree more. And it's, it's really nice. Like, I feel like whenever I go to my parents, and I'm like, like, really work myself up to that vulnerability. I'm like, oh, I'm having a really stressful week. And then like, the next like 12 times I called and be like, how's your week going? How is that test? Yeah, and I'm like, right, I've worked through it. I was just letting you know how I was in the moment. So like, for therapy, it's <laughs> yeah. great, because it's not that person every day. It's like, how's this going? Just checking in. It's like, you see them once a week, you process everything, you get the support and then you move on. And so it's just, again, that third party that's completely independent and it's, it helps you show up more effectively in your other relationships. It's, it's the greatest gift that you can give to yourself and to other people because we can't help others if we don't help ourselves first. And that's exactly what therapy can be is taking a step to help yourself. And where can the audience find you? Shout yourself out on every platform. So you can listen to my podcast, She Persisted, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, My website with 
more information on the podcast and DBT and resources is shepersistedpodcast.com. And then I'm most active on Instagram, which is at shepersistedpodcast. Awesome. Well, thank you, Sadie, so much for joining us. Thank I, you for having me. I was very excited to bring you on because we've we have yeah. had a couple mental health conversations. I feel like I could on it like I feel like we just scratched the surface. I feel like we could I could talk about this for like five more hours, mm-hmm. probably. I mean, it's like a lifelong journey. It's not oh, 100%. Just, yeah. yeah, one conversation. But thank you. And you are welcome back anytime. We we probably thank will you. do a, another round in you know, the future yeah. and have you back to discuss more. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Hey there, Vibe Hive babes. If this podcast has brought you any value, please rate and review on your favorite listening platform. And if you're feeling really generous, share with a friend. Visit us at elevatethevibe.co for show notes on this episode and previous episodes. This podcast is intended to educate, entertain, and inspire. It is not intended to diagnose, treat, or substitute for professional medical advice. Please consult your healthcare provider with any questions you may have. And as always, thank you for joining us to Elevate the Vibe.